Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Hon Wing, good to have you on the show. Oh, hey, Jeremy, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited because you have such an interesting journey as a doctor and a founder, you know, out in the world doing some really intense stuff right now in human-cyborg interfaces right now. But there's also a really fun journey that I know that you've had in the past. So really excited to share your journey. So for those who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself professionally? I would introduce myself as the currently the co-founder of Cortical Labs and also the CEO of the company. My background actually is in medicine. So I actually, as you mentioned before, studied medicine at University of Melbourne and practiced as a doctor. And then I had a startup following up from that called ClinicCloud. So Cortical Labs is, I guess, my second sort of rodeo, but um, it's actually a bit of a convoluted story. And it's uh, more of a continuation of the first one. But yeah, I guess the, uh, you know, to summarize, I'm a I'm medically trained, but I've been tinkering with machines and, you know, coding and building stuff since I was a teen. So the ability to sort of put two things together that I really love and being exposed to, I guess, business and entrepreneurship as well midway through my studies was, I guess, eye-opening. So you could think of it as like a Venn diagram with all the three, like business, tech, and like medicine, biology, all in that middle bit. And I'm that intersection point. Yeah, amazing. So we're going to go back all the way to the time of the beginning, which is why did you become a doctor? Did you know what being a doctor was? Was it something that your parents were very encouraging, like my parents, you know, nudging me towards being a doctor? I think it would be unfair to not acknowledge the fact that it is every parent's or every Asian parent's dream to push the children down a path of lawyer, doctor, engineer kind of thing. So to be honest, I, there was some component of it, but they weren't actually particularly very pushy about it. In fact, there was more, I think, the fact that my brother... So I have an older brother, Ian. He's, I think, 13 years my senior. And um, he he's actually a surgeon as well. So uh, when he got into medical school, I was kind of like, you know, inspired to follow in his footsteps. And it was quite natural for my parents to go, yeah, that's a great career path. You have our complete blessing. Um, and uh, I mean, there's also, I guess, a, an element of private competitiveness as well when you're in high school. And it's kind of a very bad way of how they sort of encourage career path because here in Australia, and I think it's also the same in Singapore and elsewhere, where at the end of your, your high school, you do the A-levels or we have the DCE here and you get ranked. And naturally, the top ranked people end up doing medicine. So you, you, you kind of tend to move to that one because you're like, oh, it's so hard to get in. It's so highly ranked. It must be extremely valuable. It's what you want to aim for. But no one ever tells you that, well, you know, for instance, it, it may be the top choice, but that's because of a scarcity issue of how many places are available at university and so forth. But in the real world, it's pretty hard being a junior doctor and climbing up the ranks when, in fact, somebody else could have done software engineering for a much easier path and be killing it right now. So it's one of those things where you look back and go, hmm, could I have just done something else and it'd be easier. But I really enjoyed my time doing medicine and it was very, uh, the, the human contact side of things was something that I really enjoyed talking to patients, solving, it's a lot of problem solving actually. And I got into it after high school. So it was one of the last few batches of intakes because Melbourne University switched over to the US model, I think two or three years after I started. 
and they became a grad-only course. So I was one of the last few to go through straight from high school. Good trick by your parents who just, you know, get the first one and pressure him in. And after that, everybody follows. And similar to the education system, right? Make it scarce so everybody kind of chooses it. I totally don't get what you mean because the best people, the best grades, and it's hard to get in. So you perceive scarcity to be value, right? Kind of like how we all view diamonds with its false scarcity to be valuable as a result. Exactly, right? Exactly. So that's the it's the it's the trick. But then it's funny because when you're a child or a teenager or stuff, the world is so small and you don't see the big picture. And as you get older, you start seeing that the world is a it's a complex place with multifaceted like points of interest and what you've been exposed to at, at high school and university is kind of like a narrative that's been set by, I guess, the higher authorities, what they want the population to become. But that's not necessarily reflective in, say, what the market really decides what wants, what, what it wants. It makes a lot of sense. And the truth is, I probably bypassed that by very simply not being smart about it, but because I just didn't have the grades for it. <laughs> uh, <you know. laughs> it was like, I'm a rebel, you know, and I just actually should grades, so. It's funny because I think everyone has a very interesting path and sort of destiny and career as well, right? If they follow their passions and their interests. It's funny as well, because I have a lot of colleagues who, who stuck with the, the original plans. So medicine is a very, how do I describe it? It's very safe, but it's on rails kind of career pathway. So you, you, you're stuck doing exams for like 20, 30 years of your life kind of thing. But as long as you pass those exams, you will come out the other end as like some sort of specialist consultant and so forth. And it's a very well-defined path. So I still have a lot of colleagues and stuff who are still midway through or almost finishing that pathway. I just happened to branch out a bit later. So there are some entrepreneurs who don't even do medicine, but they branch out earlier on kind of thing. And some branch out later of the specialties as well. So I think everybody has that unique journey as well. It's just where, at which point do you decide that I'm going to take the path slightly least traveled to sort of forge your own path. And that's where you start to branch out on your own, right? Because you don't just do medicine, but you end up becoming a founder along the way. So tell us more about it. Yeah, it's a very interesting question and story as well. So the medical course at the University of Melbourne is sort of split into the preclinical and the clinical side. So you do two and two and a half years of preclinical, which is mostly sitting around listening to lectures about anatomy, physiology, and all that stuff. And then in the middle, they sort of encourage you to do, actually, no, it's a part of the course. You do a research year and they encourage you to go overseas and, and do things in that interim period. And then once you come back, you do your clinical studies. So that's when you're on placements in the hospitals and you're actually shadowing senior doctors and learning the ropes, so to speak. And in the interim period, I actually chose to do my research here at Johns Hopkins uh, in the United States, Baltimore. It was very fascinating as well because I, I somehow came across my supervisor there, Dr. Rune Matthews, through, I guess, a family friend we had a brief conversation. He said, well, I heard you like computers and I heard you're also doing medicine. Well, my brother-in-law is a medical informatician at Hopkins and he's doing some interesting research with video games and anxiety as a, and depression in hospitalized children. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I have to contact him and find out about this. And so in that period of time, I reached out to Dr. Matthews and I said, hey, you know, this is fascinating. Can I can I come over and can I do the research with you? And Dr. Matthews was really great. He was also, I guess, a very entrepreneurial person as well and really great mentor. We would take trips actually to San Francisco where we would meet up with another medical friend who had branched out as well and done his own startup. And um, 
that was, I guess, my first taste of like, wow, you, you know, there's, there's a lot more in, in the world than just following the path of just doing medicine and doing a specialist course and then finishing off and you know, doing clinical medicine. Because I, I was now exposed to, well, there's this weird, wacky branch of medicine called informatics. On top of that, there are people building businesses in this sort of new space and they were creating new stuff, raising capital. Some of them are selling and making profits. And I was very, very excited about this new prospect. So I guess that was my first taste of, of, uh, of entrepreneurship and nothing really came about that. It was more of a, I guess, a, a bit of a holiday break here because, you know, we, we weren't doing our usual course. We were just doing research and at the end of it, we just produced a thesis. And, you know, I came back to Australia and I finished off my clinical training. But what's very interesting was that, that I guess that planted the seed that would then spring into my whole career and entrepreneurial path as a, as a founder and doctor as well, where in my final year of medical school, and you know, I guess it was through all the contacts that I met in America and uh, friends, I had actually met a really great friend by the name of uh, Sai Horme, who was previously a, what do they call them, software evangelist. So the, the Microsoft evangelism program where they try to get you on the platforms and so forth. And he was telling me about this program that Microsoft ran quite a while back called the Imagine Cup. And I was in my final year of medical school. And he said, look, you're still a student. This is a program that's specifically made for students to use technology to solve some of the world's toughest problems. I was like, okay, fine. I'll have a look into it. So Sai so put me on that path. And then I said, you know what? I'm just going to enter and see what happens. So in the final year of medical school, while I was trying to finish off and graduate, I, I set out this project called Cepho Cloud, which was the idea of could we jerry-rig a, this was, I guess, in 2011, where I guess smartphones were sort of becoming the, the mainstream and peripherals were becoming cheaper. We thought, what if we could take a inline microphone that you would have in your, you know, I guess before the AirPods, we had all the... Uh, Earpods with the with the mics in it. Rip out the microphone and shove it into a stethoscope. Could we then make a low cost digital stethoscope? It was actually a very interesting. It was uh, idea because we thought if you could do that and you could make it for a very low cost, you could then I guess give it out to health workers in developing uh, in the developing world. And we were trying to solve the problem of childhood pneumonia, which was in the global health terms still I think one of the largest killers of children at the age of five. And it's very easily treatable. The problem is diagnosis is usually late and it's missed. So the the, the concept started from there. Could we then build that and connect to the smartphone? Could we then count breaths per minute so that you get a respiratory rate, which is the indicator of pneumonia? And then you start layering on things on top of this. Like, well, what have what have we put into the cloud? Because 2011, the cloud was just starting out. And we just said, let's just pad it out and have more stuff so that we can win this competition. So we, we said, let's put the cloud in there and we can transmit the data into the cloud and have some doctor around the world listen to it remotely. I guess the folks at Microsoft really liked it. And uh, we actually, I think we came second or third in the competition. We, we were then, I guess, brought forward to the next path where we pitched it to the, the guys at Microsoft and we, we won a $75,000 grant for our work. So we, we took that money and we did research at the Royal Children's Hospital because, you know, we wanted to validate the idea. We wanted to test it out. So <laughs> I guess that's a little bit of a long-winded story, but that's kind of like how I've started that medical pathway and sort of transitioned into this building tech stuff. I guess that evangelist really earned his paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he ended up becoming an entrepreneur himself, like as you do in San Francisco. And so there you are, and you're building this out. What did you learn from your first company, Clinic Cloud? 
Because that's where I met you, right? The FOB study and the 30 events. Yes. I think we were hanging out. I think we extended seated next to each other. We just started chatting that year's honorary and just kind of clicked. So what was that like? What did you learn? When did we meet? I think that was in 2016, wasn't it? Uh, around there, 2015, 2016, yeah. Um, 2015, 2016. So I graduated medicine in 2012. And the story goes, so we, we took the money, we did some re- research at the Children's Hospital, and I you know, continued on my career. In the side, I was coding features and building things for this product. Uh, well, it wasn't product yet, it was a research thing. And then one of our research nurses came up to us and told me, hey, do you know there are a lot of parents asking where could they buy a device like this and how much does it cost? And, you know, they, she was like, have you guys thought about potentially selling this? Because there are people now asking for it. And it was at that moment that I, I, I spoke to Andrew, who was my co-founder at Clinic Cloud, And I said, dude, I think there's something in this. All these parents are asking us for this janky little ugly prototype that was I guess, wires hanging out from the head of a stethoscope, where could they buy this? Because a lot of the parents were having to travel significant distances to have specialist meetings, and it was very inconvenient for them, and accessibility was a problem. So this was like my second year of residency that I said, hey, you know, Andrew, let's let's see where we can go with this. Let's, uh, let's take a punt. And so I put my medical career on hold, and he was working at Bain at that moment as well, and he put his consulting career on hold, and we took this prototype that we made and, I don't know, just took a trip over to the U.S. We went to uh, South by Southwest and we hung out with some really cool people. Ended up in the Spotify tent and had a party. I, it's crazy. Like, it, it, it's uh, some of the stuff that I, I recollect and I ha- watch, like, Silicon Valley. You're like, wow, I've actually relived some of this path in, in the Silicon Valley storyline. At that moment that we, we met a very interesting person, my name D.A. Wallach, and he was very into it. And he kind of encouraged us to keep doing this. So we, we came back to Australia. We raised a triple F round, got that money, started building prototypes. And then we thought, let's do a self-starter or a Kickstarter kind of thing to gauge interest. We did that, and that was, I guess, where the big paycheck came through. So we caught the interest of uh, Tencent Exploration's team, Palo Alto, and Ping An Ventures. And they were, this was really early on. And it's funny because when we look at it now, like MedTech is like, yes, it's very hard. Everyone knows about it. Everyone wants to invest in it. But back then, nobody, nobody knew anything about MedTech. It was like, oh, my God, healthcare, don't want to touch this. This is where companies go to die. That was the, the, the claim at that time. So we, we got that money from Tencent and Ping'an and were able to learn a lot. We learned how the hardware business worked. We managed to find a contract manufacturer in China, set up a line, started to produce devices. And it was, I guess, warp speed from then on because we needed to get the products to market and that required regulatory approval. So we learned a lot about like how the regulatory process works for the FDA and the CE path. So I think it was quite amazing in hindsight how we were able to get an, an application through for a class two device in about 18 to 24 months. And that was through some of the advice that we got from our regulatory consultants. So learned a lot from that process. The issue, however, was, I guess, selling, right? The sales process was very arduous. It was very difficult to figure out how to sell these devices. And one of the downsides was that we were we were relying on somebody who previously had sold or had executed a really great marketing and plan for a connected light bulb company. And we, we, we bought him on board and be like, hey, can you help us do this stuff? And I guess it's hard as well when you don't really understand the market, but you try to go back and reach into the old playbook and apply it. So 
we were chasing down like deals with Best Buy and so forth. When in fact, it didn't feel, seem like a good fit because you don't go to Best Buy when your kid is sick and go to CDS or Walmart kind of thing. And so we made a few four pars along the way, but it was particularly very, it was a slog trying to sell a healthcare device because, well, a healthcare device to healthy people, because that's the last thing you think about. Mind you, this is before COVID-19. <laughs> Getting sick is not in the forefront of anyone's mind. I, I think at that point, when I met you at the Forbes event, you know, we had we had some win, win in the sales. We were making some sales with that and we were executing. But then I think it was just unfortunate as well because I think end of 2016 was when Trump came into office. That kind of tanked a lot of our momentum because so one of the things along the way was we realized we weren't going to be able to hit critical mass if we kept having to spend to get ads and get consumers to buy this stuff. So B2C was very difficult for us. So we pivoted into a B2B deal but we had spent quite a significant amount of like capital with sales teams and trying to chase down these B2B deals. And we were on the cusp of actually signing off on a significant deal that would have funded the company and continued production with the, the Veterans Affairs in the United States. But the issue, and this is the thing with healthcare, is that a lot of the funding is determined by the government. And I mean, you have a administration change. So when Trump came into power, and he, he had this threat of like, I, I don't like Obamacare, I'm going to rip it out and replace it with Trumpcare. A lot of the healthcare organizations suddenly stopped all their discretionary spending projects. And our device was actually on the discretionary spending project list. So that was really bad for us because, you know, we, we were on the cusp of selling a whole bunch of devices that got put on hold. And so we just had to keep going on with this. And I think it was maybe mid of 2017 or yeah, middle of 2017, late 2017, that we realized it was futile because Trump tried to get rid of Obamacare with Trumpcare and he got knocked back twice and it was still in this limbo phase that we decided, oh, this is not going to work out. We need to pivot out into something else. We can't keep, well, at that moment in time, and this is also, I guess, one of the, one of my learnings, my biggest learnings was that never raise more capital than you need because it's a terrible feeling running a zombie company. At that moment in time, we, we almost felt it was kind of like a zombie company because we had not enough capital to create a new line of products, but we had too much capital sitting around and you know you can't just like return it back to your investors. They don't really want it. So you're in this like weird phase and you just have to keep trying different ideas and, and figuring out what you want to do. So yeah, I, I forgot to also mention, so that when we actually re- raised funding from, from Tencent Ping, we actually raised a $5 million round uh, with the expectation that a lot of it was going to be going into sales and also creating new product lines. But then as we learned, it, doing hardware is extremely difficult, extremely hard because you need large minimum order quantities of 10,000 units. And so if you don't get the 10,000, no one's going to spin up a line. If you don't spin up a line, you're not going to be able to sell and reduce your bomb and, you know. So forth. So that was, I guess, one of my one of my biggest, I guess, learnings and shock as well that came with it, which is you can execute everything perfectly and get almost all the way there, but timing is crucial. Everything is about timing. And we were unfortunately at the wrong place at the wrong time for the the critical part of the, the sale process. And so yeah, that that was that was what I call what I consider the the period of the 2017. So 2018 to 2019, I've 
I class it as the valley of death. It was going through a uh, sort of a downward spiral and we had no idea what we were going to do. And we were just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what, what stuck. And uh, yeah, I, uh, there's a very, very funny an- anecdote. So in I think 2018, I didn't know what to do. So, and I was running, I guess, a, a zombie company. So I said, all right, guys, I'm, I'm going off on a holiday kind of thing. It's funny because at that time, we already started to pivot out. We were like, we're going to do AI. We're not quite sure what we're going to do yet because we didn't, we weren't sure what the landscape was. This is, mind you, yeah, 2018, sort of the start of the whole buzz. We had several projects in the pipeline. One of the projects was my current co-founder, Andy, was working on a reinforcement learning system that was going to be able to learn how to play partially observable games like poker. And at that time, no one had really done it with uh, reinforcement learning slash artificial neural network approach. And we thought this might be something that would be useful and it would set us on the path towards a kind of AI sort of deep mind company. And then the second one, which was kind of a random and crazy idea, was what Cortical Labs is today, which was integrating neurons on silicon chips. And the story, the genesis of how this came along was we had this, we had a crisis meeting in the company and we said, well, we don't have enough money to, to do this new product line. We can't make any more medical products. We can't do any more FDA because not enough capital and not enough momentum to raise on top of that. We can't close the company down. So let's just pivot. And like we had all these ideas and we said, all right, we're going to do these two or three things. And we got the idea of doing cortical labs from actually all the research, background research that we had done from all the AI people like Jeff Hinton and Demis Savas, who said, the AI industry has sort of that has gone too far down deep learning and it needs, needed to re-engage with the neurosciences in order to come up with the next breakthrough. So we literally took that advice and spoke to the neuroscience guys here at the, uh, the Florida Institute of Neuroscience. And they were telling us some interesting work that was coming out of Japan where they were able to get it to do some computational functions and so forth. Yeah, anyway, we started these two projects and I went on a holiday and a really great trip. It was reconnecting with my friends from, from Hopkins and we, you know, we did this Euro slash Asia trip thing. So we started in Singapore, no, we started in Malaysia and then we went up to Hong Kong. And here's the funny story. So I was in Hong Kong and, you know, being a, being a single dude and nothing else to do in a hotel, you open up Tinder, you start swiping. Admittedly, I, I don't get very much success on Tinder. So when somebody does a super like and you get a booster, you're like, oh my God, what, what just happened here, right? So this, this exactly happened when I was in Hong Kong. I, I, I was like, I got a blue star. The, the girl was really cute. And I was like, all right, I'm going to play this cool. Don't reply yet. Don't reply. Don't look desperate, all right? So I, I waited about, I guess, 20 hours. I'm going to make it 24 hours, but I couldn't make it 24. 20 hours later, I texted her and said, hey, I'm so glad we matched and I think you're really pretty. Let's grab a drink sometime kind of thing and, uh, you know, meet each other. And then she wrote back saying, oh, I can't. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm currently in the airport. And I was like, oh, really? Where, where are you going? She's like, oh, I, I'm in the airport. I'm going back to Shanghai at the moment. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be in Shanghai in like five or six days as well. Let's meet up there. And she's like, yeah, that's perfect. Let's do that. So fast forward five to six days later, I meet her in Shanghai. I was like, hey, I'm staying at the Mandarin Oriental, whatever, let's grab a drink. She came down and it's so interesting because when you're there and you're trying to impress the girl, you tell them everything, right? Like, oh, I'm a CEO of this, I'm a medical doctor, this is the IGM products that we're doing. And she was like, wow, this is so cool. I have to tell my boss this. He's going to love what you do. I was like, what the, okay, sure. <laughs> then the next day she then goes, okay, I, uh, 
I told my boss and he really wants to meet you. And I said, okay, let's do that. So I, I follow her. We, we took a DD to the, the boss's place. And it was this karaoke thing that he owned in the top floor. He's apparently some like real estate billionaire. And it was so awkward because it was like, all right, here are all these karaoke girls. They're like, pour you drinks and telling him everything that you're doing. But she's the translator as well. But then all these like, it was so weird anyway. So, and he was like, this is so cool. I, I really like your tech. I want to fund you now. And, you know, here's X amount for Y amount of shares. Like, dude, I don't, you haven't even heard like the full story. How, what, what is this? So I said, I'm not going to take the deal, but let's stay in contact. The following day, I caught up with, with this girl for lunch sort of the debrief. And I said, hey, you know, don't you think it's a little bit weird that, you know, we were supposed to be on a date, but then I was there and you were my translator talking to your boss with all these girls around us, pouring me drinks and stuff. And she's like, no, that's perfectly normal. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, oh, oh, this is what I usually do when I go to Hong Kong. I go to Hong Kong and I find the guys who I think are interesting. And then I super like them. She's like, like our CFO, three to four weeks before I was in Hong Kong, I came across this guy, you know, looked really smart, MIT grad, worked at uh, Goldman Sachs or something like that. And I super liked him. We caught up for drinks and I thought he was a perfect candidate. And then so I introduced him to my boss and now he's our CFO. And then it just occurred to me, oh my God, this is brilliant. This lady was using Tinder as uh, a replacement for LinkedIn as a recruiter. <laughs> and and I and I just it just occurred to me how brilliant that move was because whenever a, a recruiter comes up to me I'm like no no interested yeah no I don't want to talk to recruiters but if it's a Tinder date you're like let me tell you everything about me kind of stuff <laughs> so that that is my funny anecdote in 2018. Wow what a story I do remember back in my single days being very eager to impress <laughs> and so. Totally right to say, like, if somebody had asked me to tell, I would have told them everything. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly right. So it was just, yeah, amazing how I was like thinking about it saying, wow, this is like a perfect channel. I don't know. It, it might not work these days because you know, it's a little bit not PC and you know, the, the, the work crew might not like this kind of like approach. But hey, it worked. It worked with me and that. So it, it's very funny as well because the connection I made with this billion, Chinese eccentric billionaire kind of shaped the path of how Clinical turned into Cortical Labs because, so let, we're continuing on the story now. So I'm back in Australia after my, my epic trip and meeting this, this guy. It's, it's it kind of mind-blowing to think about it in retrospect. But uh, so we, we were continuing on in parallel, two projects. We were like, all right, let's try to do this brain stuff. But let's also try to do this AI poker playing thing. And he managed to uh, get something together and actually was accepted for a post presentation at, at NIPS and the reinforcement learning workshop. We went over to, I think it was in, bon yeah, it was in Montreal in 2018, and we were showing the, the, the work that we did. But unfortunately, the problem, and this is also, I guess, a, a symptom of like the AI space as well, which is everyone is so focused on the, the state of the art. So everything is about big, bold numbers. Like, have you, did you beat the last algorithm in ImageNet and so forth? And, when you present something that doesn't actually like break the state of the art, but it's completely novel, people are like, boo, not interested kind of stuff. And it was, it was kind of sad at the moment because we were like, wow, no, no one's that keen about this. But what people were keen about was when we told them about the alternative project of, hey, you know, we, we're also growing brains and we're also trying to like figure out how they interact and stuff. And that was like, people were like, well, hey, this is really cool stuff. Let me know when you actually get it running so we can actually you know, look into it kind of stuff. So 
at the end of 2018, 2019, I came back and I said, look, you know what? It's kind of obvious that the we've narrowed it down to one thing, which is this thing, this idea of growing neurons on chips has legs. People will be interested. Researchers will want to know more about how these things work and how they, they do this sort of, I guess, computation for intelligence. So we pivoted the company in doing that completely. And it's at that moment in time where I went back on WeChat and I messaged uh, a Tinder girl and said, hey, is your boss interested in having a chat and stuff? And the boss was like, yes, come up to Shanghai. We'll, we'll, we'll hang out kind of thing. So yeah, I, I ended up doing that and tried to negotiate some funding. And he's yes, he said he was going to fund us. But the problem was that at that time, 2019, was the trade war was starting to ramp up. And we were a Delaware company. So we, he had the hardest time. He almost couldn't get, actually, he didn't get any money across to us because it was going to be blocked by the C, CFI US. He tried to like create a Hong Kong company in order to invest. But then Hong Kong has this crazy amount of KYC, AML stuff that he couldn't get through. And, you know, it was a, it was a whole mess. But the, the thing about it is like, I guess he played somewhat of a, not a central, but a peripheral role in the sense that he, this was a very sad and sort of a depressing time for the company because we were down to our last few dollars actually in fact I, we were almost broke at that time and i had to put in my own money and and he he kept us going because he you know there was this hope that there was funding there was hope that somebody was interested in our work and it so happened to be around that time that we were putting connect uh, we were connected with my current venture partner nikki skivak from from blackbird ventures and we told him what we were doing and he was blown away and the team at Blackbird were blown away by it. And he said, we're in this, but you need to figure out how to recap the company and, and so forth. And at that time, because we, we thought, hey, you know, this this is not going to improve this whole trade war thing. We said, let's recap the company. Well, let's not recap the company. Let's just reincorporate it back in Australia. So uh, what I did was I, I took all the old investors and I created a chunk of shares with for in a new company in Australia, and I just allocated them for Rada and brought the whole thing back to Australia and started started afresh. But it was it was a very like hairy situation because you, you know I needed to get like waivers and all that documents signed by twenty different convertible note holders. Everything was dependent on getting the signatures. Things were slow because we needed like wet ink on paper because you know Australia being backward needed wet ink on paper signatures. And it kept dragging on where we had no money left. So I was like, oh my God, I have to keep the lights going. And we had all these projects lined up, but we couldn't start them because there was no capital. So put in, I think, about 40,000 of my own capital just to keep things going. And in September of 2019, we got all the signatures through. Oh, actually, no, we, we got all except for one, which is, I think it was Tencent or Pingan who was slow. And then I told Nikki, like, they pretty much said yes. They're just trying to go through the process of, like, signing this off. Can you please put the money in now? They're being such great investors. They said, you know what, we'll work something out. So they 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 actually wired us the cash before the whole, all the signature packets were signed. And that's how we, we got our first, you know, transfer funding to, to keep going. But that, that period of 2018 to 20, sorry, 2018 and 2019 was, I guess, it was a it was a tough and very depressing period of time because not knowing what you're going to do, where you're going to go, and then having some sort of I guess false hope. It was a tumultuous year, and um, you know I, I look back and I and I kind of wonder how I actually got through all of that. But I think having something to believe in, even though it may not exactly be true or false, uh, no, true, but like maybe a bit fantastical, 
perhaps gives you enough hope to soldier through that 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 really a tough portion of time. And it was so tough. That I, I I spoke to a couple of friends. I was like, look, man, I I don't know how long I can keep going on with this. Um, if I <laughs> if I can't get the signature pack signed in like two weeks, I'm, I'm probably gonna have to call it quits and throw in the towel and. Uh, quit the whole startup thing and do something else. So yeah, it was it was a sliding door kind of moment in time then. Whoa, what a crazy story. And I think from remote, I didn't really feel all of that. And it's crazy because I totally empathize because the inside out dynamic for a founder is so tough. So you mentioned that throughout a time, it was really stressful and it must have been tough. I mean, you must have had to choose to be brave. You know, you had to choose to do stuff like ask for help or ask for money to come in, even though not everything's not in yet. Can you tell us about those times when you had to be brave? Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, I think there's a lot of like running a startup, being a founder is all about bravery, right? In in the face of adversity and and you know keeping morale up and and so forth. I think it's kind of sad as well looking back because we at its peak, Clinic Cloud had I think 20 employees. We had a, a whole big office and. And we held this you know, equipment and so forth. And it's like in the scene in Silicon Valley where the where Pipe Piper goes broke and they had to sell all the, the furniture and stuff. Been there and done that. That's a, I think that was that requires a lot of bravery to 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 transition out and realize that this isn't working. We we need to pivot out and do something. So because as a founder, you look at it and you're like, I built all this stuff, but I can't afford it anymore now. I have to sell it. And it's very disheartening that process of downsizing and also hemorrhaging talent as well, because some people just, they don't see the, any path going forward. And, you know, you, you make some really great friends and colleagues, but some of them just have to, they jump ship because they have to like load and you have to remove some of them as well. So cutting head count, watching your, your numbers dwindle, actually, it, it is a very scary process that requires a ton of bravery. And as you said, reaching out to investors and saying, look, you know, it's almost there. I, I, can you please do something to help us out? I think that that requires a lot of bravery. And even on our current trajectory, I, I, I sometimes question myself as well why I'm doing this. And, and I think that doing the kind of deep tech work that we're doing requires a ton of bravery, right? Because we, we're, not fa- we're faced with multiple challenges. In most cases, a lot of, say, other startups who are known in the deep tech space have, say, only one challenge, which is, for instance, if there is a, a, a market that's ready to go and, and you need to build a product, that becomes a technical challenge. You know, can you deal with the technical stuff to get to the market and then sell it? On the other hand, you may also have a technology which is ready to go, and then you just then have to figure out what the product market fit is and you know, try different things and different sales strategies. We're starting with two unknowns. We have technical risk and we also have market risk because when you're building something that doesn't exist before, you then now have to figure out how do you generate revenue? How do you sell this thing? So right now I'm, I'm still looking at it going, I have no idea how I'm going to do it. I have a vision of where I want to get to, but how do we get there is still kind of debatable, right? So I've had you know, discussions, debates, and arguments with VCs who are like, no, 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 you can't do this. You can't do a horizontal strategy. It has to be vertical. Horizontals don't work and so forth. And you're like, but Microsoft, Google, all these guys are horizontal strategies. None of them are verticals. And and so I guess getting knocked back a lot and being questioned on the core fundamental and existential question of like, why why should you even exist? I think it's, it's, it's something that requires a ton of bravery to sort of tackle. How do you manage your own personal energy? Because, you know, getting knocked back, your debates, 
So there's, you know, there's all these technical stuff we're going to do, but how did you manage your energy? For me, I remember as a founder, it was always like, I knew when I was not managing my energy, when I was starting to watch like too much YouTube, <laughs> I was starting to avoid my emails. <laughs> and I was like, okay, if you, don't, you catch that and you're like, oh, why am I? There's a good chunk of YouTube where I enjoy, you know, like watching history. And then suddenly I'm deep into like, you know, medieval age history. I'm like, whoa, I'm probably in too deep right now, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, and so I think I noticed that. And I think for me, it was always like, okay, I need to tell my loved ones, talk to my sister, go for a massage, mm. uh, go for a walk. Those are the ways I manage my energy. How about you? I was kind of curious. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, I think the thing about it, and this is also, you know, it, this is more recent that recently happened as well, which is all those, all, all that you've mentioned above, right? Like going out for walks you know, or hanging out with friends. I think talking is actually really important. Having people to talk to, debate and you know, trusted friends who, you know, you know, will give you like straightforward answers. Also ones who are supportive as well. I think it's key. And and one thing that I, I noticed was really hard. So we recently just closed, well, it's still in a rolling uh, fundraise, but we closed a uh, lead investor for a uh, pre-A sort of bridging round. This was done in the backdrop of a potential, there was a recently a, a sort of a fundraising deal that was going through TD, but I think it's somewhat fallen through because of technical issues. But there was a question of, do we take deal A or deal B? This was done during the recent two-week Melbourne lockdown. And so being in isolation, dealing with the fundraising you know, question of, do I do A or B? I, I found that was very challenging, primarily because we didn't have any of those avenues to like decompress. I couldn't go out. I couldn't talk to people about it. I mean, I could talk to people about it, but it was on Zoom and it's not the same. And, and so the usual things would be going for a run, going to the gym. I think going out and having a good night, having some food with friends and, and, and a good drink is, is all these things I think helps decompress. And a lot of the times, I think this is a, is a problem that I, I certainly feel and I do that you know, some of the founders also say they do is we put a lot of time and emotional energy thinking about what ifs? What if I did this? What if I did that? What would the outcomes be? And a lot of the times, these things are out of our control. And so I find that perhaps sometimes the best thing you can do is just not think about it, just shut it out. I guess maybe that's the whole like YouTube strategy, right? That you have. I just turn on my PlayStation and just play some games <laughs> to, to escape from this thing. So I don't go into this loop of like, oh, what if I did A and B and try to scenario model everything? Yeah, I think I, I call it a spiral. It's like when I notice myself in a spiral and I'm just like ruminating, I think, or something. I think the prayer, right? They say, um, God, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, right? Yes. Courage to change the things I can. Yeah. And wisdom to know the difference. Exactly, yeah. And I think the founder's mentality is that you can change everything. <laughs> I, I know, right? It, 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 is a, it is a very interesting sort of phenomenon, right? Like the this... This notion of control and what we have and we outside what we have and control what we don't. It's interesting that you mentioned this as well because, like, so Sydney's recently going through a lockdown and I'm watching all the feeds and everyone's like, "Oh my god, no toilet paper!" Going, you know, everyone's rushing to. <laughs> I, I think it happened in Singapore as well with the lockdown. Everyone just rushes to get toilet paper. But it's very interesting because, from a psychological sort of theoretical point of view, it's about control when everything is out of your control, like you're getting locked down beside, without you saying, yes, I want to go get locked down and stuff. The last thing you reach out for is that toilet paper, that soft, silky white toilet paper. And there is a Freudian sort of like 
analysis for it, right? Because as you as you grow up and as you you develop, like you, you learn how to control your bladder and you learn how to feed yourself, and then the fun one of the last things you learn how to control is your own defecation process. And so, the ability to still have that control is, I think, somewhat very comforting to the ordinary person. I think relating this back. How do I go from, from toilet paper to founder story? Right. To, to the founder story is that we feel very uncomfortable when we have uncertainty and ambiguity. And I think, you know, that's just something that we have to deal with. And we have to deal with it in a constructive way because sometimes it can be all-consuming. And I think founder mental health is actually really important. It's a tough journey. Having friends who are founders so you can bounce off ideas and who've been there, I think is extremely valuable because it is somewhat kind of lonely in this space. You can't share everything with your with your colleagues. There are some strategic things that you can only talk to with other people in the same space or in the same level. So yeah, I, I do think that being able to control and understand what the control you have and what is outside of your control and delineate that and just accept it for what it is, is really important for down to mental health. I mean, that's the tough part, right? Because I think you hit the nail on the head, which is Toilet paper, you're not buying it for the toilet paper. You're also buying it for the feeling of control. Mm. And I think for so many founders, saying like, I don't have control over my customers. I can control my response to the customers, but I, can, I don't control them. Yeah. I don't control the VC or the board, but I can control my response to them. It's a tough boundary to have because I remember waiting for emails and I would just be so anxious and nervous and scared and avoided because it's an important piece of news. And you're just there. And then now that I'm out of it, I think myself like, hey, Jeremy, you could enjoy yourself and gone out for a meal or something during that time instead of vibrating at home, right? And that's a tough spot. It's all a matter of perspective, right? It is a matter of perspective from the point of view of where you are and look, taking a bigger picture, right? And as you said, you've grown from as a founder to now be on the other side of the table and you've seen it because you're like, well, it wouldn't make no difference if you'd gone out for a nice dinner or, you know, sit in front of the thing and just hit refresh, right? Because it would still come in and the outcome would have been decided that would be outside of your control. And, and so I think it's it's part of the sort of growth and maturation process. I'm certainly guilty of myself of doing that as well, where I, I have done that as well, where you sit there and you're like, oh my God, there's something that's going to come in. Is this deal going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And you get, I guess, overly personally committed to it. Come to think of it, having the ability to to extricate oneself from this company, from the startup, and realize that businesses come and go. The startup, yes, you may have poured many years, countless amount of blood, sweat, and tears into it, but these things come and go. They succeed, they fail. That those things are, I guess, outside. Some of it, a lot of it is actually outside of your control. But what you do have control of is the friends and the connections that you make. So, for instance. From Clinicly, I'm still in contact with a lot of my colleagues and employees. Those are connections and friendships that I cherish. And, and I think those are the more important things. I think it, a lot of people get caught up with like, I must succeed and I will do all, whatever it takes to, to succeed. But I think it's very important to also realize that success and failure for a startup is sort of a point in time. What's more important are the people, the friends that you make. And you always try to maintain the friendships that you have as well, which is very, I guess, often too busy, I don't have time to meet up with them or catch up and say hi or visit them kind of thing. They're going to be there. They're going to be there when you, you succeeded or when you fail. So 
I think that's probably the most important thing to remember that you have control of is the, the friends and connections that you have. I'm curious, wrapping up here is, when you look back on your time, what's a moment that you could paint of a picture of a time where nobody else saw? Like paint us a picture of one of those days where you're succeeding or scared or whatever it is. Could you paint us a picture of that? Oh, that that is a very interesting, very thought-provoking question. Does it have to be a success or a failure or it can just be any like moment? I'll tell you mine. Okay. I can tell you mine now. We'll make you beautiful, right? All right. So a lot of people were like giving me congratulations, I think, for my seed announcement and funding. So we closed the term sheet. It was, I think, very good and great. It was amazing that we signed the term sheet and have the agreements. I can't remember. I think it's like, you know, all the long form, et cetera. By the time I kind of like left my laptop, it was like close to midnight. And I realized that I had no one to celebrate with. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> I was still, you know, like, you know, at the office. Yep. And I was like, I, I, you know, I'm like in Boston and my family's not around. My girlfriend is not around. And so I remember I just uh, pinged this guy, you know, as a Singaporean founder in Singapore, Jonathan. We, at the time, were just acquaintances. But I said, hey, can I come over because I need to celebrate? And I have no one to celebrate with. And I should celebrate this thing. Uh, and so I invited myself over to his place. And then I, I ordered myself like some sushi. And then we hung out, him and I. And actually, a few other friends drifted in because I just... At that time, I was looking at a couple of friends and say like, hey, I just realized I should be celebrating this, a mini win. And so we all drifted in around midnight as a last minute hangout. And I was laughing because zooming out, it was just like a lot of people see this like very glossy, like win kind of thing. And for me, it was just very much like, hey, <laughs> me scrambling to pull a few founder friends to celebrate last minute. And I thought it was a great night. Uh, I mean, obviously, I made some great friendships for that night as well. With Jonathan as well, we eventually became neighbors. I think that was a, a true moment for me. It's funny how you have a story of succeeding and then going, oh, there's no one else to celebrate or oh, I really should be celebrating kind of thing. And it, it happened many times at ClinCloud. I'm talking about ClinCloud because Core Collapse is just too new and we don't, we have a few successes and there's something that's coming along the way, but ClinCloud is the one that I, I, I know more about with the stuff. So for instance, I, so my, my role at ClinCloud was actually as chief technology officer. We, we always had this thing about because we made, I made a lot of trips to, to San Francisco and I would always, on the way back from LAX or SFO, like buy a bottle of tequila because we were like, well, you know, once we like push out the Android app or the iOS app or whatever app or whatever feature, we're going to have a celebration. But the problem is we were always behind schedule. So whenever we pushed out the update, we were just so exhausted. No one went to the party. I was like, oh, right, I'm just going to go home. And then we always would say, all right, we'll do the party next week. But we never ended up doing that party. So... We accumulated, I think, six bottles of tequila for all the various like product features and apps that we were pushing out. And I still remember that one of the, the best moments was, well, it was the best and bittersweet moment. We, were, we had a really nice office in the middle of the city. This was at the pivot transition period phase from ClinicLab to Cortical Labs. We were moving the office into the laboratory space of the Alfred. It was much smaller. It wasn't, it wasn't as nice as the old place. And then we had this six bottle of tequila and we said, all right. We're going to send off the old office in style. So what we did was everyone gathered around. We ordered like, I think, four or five 
buckets of KFC chicken, <laughs> pizza, and we just drank all the booze in the office in that one night. Because I was like, I'm not bringing, we're not, we're not, we're not going home until we finish this all. We're not, I'm not taking it home and we're not bringing it to the office and no one's taking it home at all. So we're going to do it tonight. So we all like got completely plastered on that night, but it was so much fun because it was a, you know, moment to re- reflect and recollect about like the memories that we had in the old office. And I, I really quite cherished that moment, even though it was, as I said, it was a bit of a bittersweet moment because, you know, as a founder, you realize we've downsized, we're not, we can't afford this place anymore. It's more of a sort of an acknowledgement of where we were and where we're going to go now kind of thing. Wow. Amazing. What a send off, like a Viking funeral, right? It's a stuff of burning board is just tequila burning your insights. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Wow. That's a true story. Well, thank you so much, Han, for sharing all of that. Well, telling to tie things off, I'd like to paraphrase the three big themes I heard from you for the benefit of everybody. First of all, thank you so much for sharing your actual journey from university student to doctor, to branching out, to actually experimenting with being a founder, to Clinic Cloud, and doubling down on that, to now where you are at Cortical Labs with uh, everything in between. And I really enjoyed user sharing the true story, I think, of each stage about what a transition was to you at that time. And in retrospect, what it meant to you as well, looking back. Second thing I really want to thank you is for that hilarious story, actually, about is it's not the humor around the, the vacation and the actuality and the super like. And this is a funny story because it's so true. It sounds like totally Silicon Valley. It's a true story. I've had similar experiences, not the same way, obviously. You know, yeah, it's just the weird serendipity slash dark comedy of being a founder. It's so funny, especially when you get to look back on it. And uh, I thank you so much for sharing that story, not because it's also funny, but also because it's real. And last thing, of course, thank you so much for sharing is, the, you know, what I call like founder psychology, like you call it mental health. And what does it mean to have that true life around what it means to be a true founder for better for worse, uh, the actual reality of it. And I think it was just uh, amazing to hear all the tough times uh, that you went through, because I think the truth is the founder story is full of ups and downs. And I think you sharing it and being open about it as well as about how that Viking funeral sent off a tequila. I think it's a good reminder for every founder that where's that locus control? Whereas that differentiation between, yeah, what is the toilet paper of my founder life? <laughs> Slash, what can I actually control? Exactly. The, the fan journey is just like life, full of up and downs. But, you know, you just have to go with the blows, right? Take it as it comes. Thank you so much for sharing. And I appreciate it, Han. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.